Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello everyone and welcome to LawPod. My name is Daniela Suarez. I'm a PhD student at the School of Law of Queen's University Belfast. And we're here today with two special guests, Dr. Rachel Killian and Dr. Lauren Dempster. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Lauren. So maybe can you start with just a brief introduction about yourselves? Yeah, I'll go first. I'm Dr. Rachel Killian. So nice to be here. I was formerly at Queen's University Belfast where I ran LawPod for a while. So it's always really wonderful to be back. But now I'm based at the University of Sydney on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. And here I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Law. Hi, Daniela. Thank you for interviewing us today. I am Lauren Dempster. So I'm a lecturer in the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast. I'm on the other side of the microphone today. So I've been an uh, interviewer for the other episodes in this series. So um, Rachel and I today are going to speak about the chapter that we've contributed to Matt Evans' edited collection on Beyond Transitional Justice, Transformative Justice and the State of the Field or Non-Field. Um, so yeah, thank you for, for being our interviewer today. Yeah, no, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's really nice to have you here. So maybe we can start with uh, Rachel. Can you tell us um, about the rationale behind the chapter of, uh, that you publish? Absolutely. So the title is just Greening Transitional Justice. Um, so the rationale for this chapter was, or the rationales were threefold, I think. I think first we wanted to write something that highlighted the ways in which atrocity crimes and environmental harms are interlinked. So as we set out in the first section of the chapter, there's several ways in which this linking occurs. Environmental degradation is a source of conflict and equal access to natural resources is a source of conflict. We can think of examples like Agent Orange, where environmental destruction is a deliberate strategy of atrocity or is used to, um, as a tactic against targeted groups. We can also think about the non-deliberate environmental harm of military activity. We're seeing that in Ukraine. In addition to deliberate attacks on the environment, the toxicity associated with conflict can be really long-lasting and severe. And the end of atrocities can also bring environmental harms through uh, increased resource extraction and unregulated investment in the aftermath of, of a conflict, for example. So we wanted to draw that out a little bit. And then the second rationale was to draw attention not only to the nature of that linking, but to the failure of um, dominant transitional justice practice and to some extent transitional justice scholarship in recognizing this type of harm. So when we talk about transitional justice as People that have listened to the series will already know we're talking about the mechanisms and practices that are designed to deal with atrocities. So things like trials, truth commissions, reparations, community-led projects, and also the body of interdisciplinary research of which we are a part. So in relation to the latter, we have seen significant developments in environmental awareness and an increasingly broad uh, variety of scholarships that is teasing out these links between atrocity and environmental harm. But we don't necessarily see that in practice. Uh, and so the chapter seeks to draw out why that might be and why environmental harm is so often 
overlooked in responses to atrocity crimes. And then third, the, the concept of greening transitional justice is in part because we wanted to look at green criminology in particular as one potential important contribution to transitional justice in terms of furthering that recognition of environmental harm. So Lauren and I both come from a background that engages with criminology as a way of thinking about transitional justice and criminology has been flagged, including by our former supervisor, Kieran McAvoy, as a discipline that has a lot to offer the field of transitional justice. And in part, that's because it encourages deeper reflections about big questions like who is a victim, what harms do we recognize, what do we consider criminal, how do we respond to harm, those kinds of questions are obviously really pertinent in the kind of questions that Lauren and I are asking. And then green criminology was particularly interesting to us because although it's relatively new as a branch of criminology, it's already developed quite a lot into a variety of different perspectives drawing from a variety of different theoretical starting points. But what unites it is this commitment to understanding the nature of environmental harm, its impacts on humans and non-humans as well, and thinking about what role, if any, a criminal response might have in responding to environmental harms. So those are the three rationales that set out the problem of um, environmental harm as a, a relational impact and factor in conflict and atrocity. Look at the gap and then see what this particular field might offer. And we did all that in uh, not many words. So it's, it's really a snapshot chapter of some really pretty big debates. So in this chapter, you unpack uh, several critiques of transitional justice, which you argue help explain the overlooking of environmental harm in the field. Um, so Lauren, could you um, perhaps expand on the first of these critiques, the one about the dominance of legalism in transitional justice? Sure. Thank you, Daniela. So yes, as Rachel said, this um, chapter was quite brief. It's really a snapshot of, of this work. So we try to sort of deal with some quite, quite big uh, critiques of transitional justice in quite a small space. So I guess also just to acknowledge that I think as we'll say a little bit more on later, we have built on this work since we wrote this chapter. So our ideas have moved on a little bit, but for the purposes of this episode, I'll focus on the on the chapter. So the first of the three critiques that we look at is that, as you mentioned, Daniela, the dominance of legalism in transitional justice. So as you and I'm sure some of our listeners will be aware, Kieran McAvoy used this phraseology back in 2007. So there was an awareness that even though in transitional justice as a field, um, in both practice and, and scholarship, there's a recognition that uh, the law, specifically criminal uh, prosecution, isn't the only way to address past harm. It's perhaps not the, the best way to address past harm. And it's also sometimes maybe not the, the a sort of uh, practical way to actually address past harm. So there is a recognition that there are other routes available, but in the field, legalism continues to dominate. So what this means in broad terms is that this legalistic approach shapes the mechanisms that, that we see in transitional justice. And I guess of particular relevance for this work that Rachel and I are doing, it shapes the way we see harms and understand victimhood. So a further aspect of this, I guess, is that law is traditionally anthropocentric. So um, for instance, uh, Valverde has talked about how man continues to be central when, when we think about law. So if we think about something like environmental harm, uh, this anthropocentrism means that some environmental harms are overlooked altogether. 
and other environmental harms are are framed through their relationship with human beings. So, for example, framed as uh, economic crimes or uh, damage to property, for instance. So, like a second strand then to this um, dominance of legalism that we look at is what this legalism looks like. So, the legalism that we see in transitional justice is shaped very much by international human rights law and international criminal law, and in particular. Um, we see that violations of civil and political rights are, are prioritised and um, others and Rachel and I in this chapter argue that this blinkers us to those spaces where we might better capture or sort of see the impacts of environmental harm. So for instance, there's an overlooking of socioeconomic rights, cultural rights and as is well established now, structural violence. Uh, Rachel mentioned that one of the things that, that we're doing with this work is looking at green criminology in particular to see how it might help us unpack some of these limitations and think about how they might be addressed. So uh, with regards to this critique for the dominance of legalism, we found the green criminology literature to be really helpful in helping us think that through. So that literature helps us to think about environmental harms that may be perpetrated legally or with impunity. So that includes both environmental destruction itself and also the secondary crimes that follow on from that. And Rachel's already touched on that relationship a bit, a bit in her introduction to the to the chapter. I mean, one of the things that, that we, we think about in this chapter and we think about in this work generally is that a criminal response might not always be the best way to address uh, environmental harm, uh, particularly where that harm is systematic or perhaps uh, very gradual in nature. However, we have found this green criminology literature really helpful in helping us to expand our understandings of crime and help us see beyond this anthropocentric lens. Related to that then is that we've also found the green victimology literature really helpful here. So that brings our attention to uh, victims that are, have historically been less visible in, in transitional justice. That brings us into conversation with ideas around the rights of nature, for instance, the rights of future generations and the rights of indigenous peoples. So we have found in terms of sort of challenging and unpacking this dominance of legalism, uh, the green criminology and green victimology literature has been really helpful so far. Okay, so the, the second critique that you have in your or that you mentioned in your chapter is that you that transitional justice has a neocolonial tendency. Um, so. Could you tell us a bit more about this second critique, Lauren? Yes, thank you, Daniela. So um, again, as we've built on this work since the chapter, this is an area where we have been getting into a lot more literature. Um, but I guess for the purposes of, of this episode and, and, and keeping it relatively concise, um, Anne Naim, for instance, and others such as uh, Brankovic and Vandermeer, for example, have uh, argued that transitional justice has a neo-colonial tendency. So what this means is that knowledge production is dominated by the, the global north. So we see the prioritization of Eurocentric norms and the specific types of justice that come with that. So a focus on individual accountability and retributive justice, for instance. In transitional justice, what that has looked like is, um, as we've seen in the work of critical scholars like uh, Madeleine Gozi, in particular, also Benyera and Yusuf and others, um, is that we end up with a situation where we have transitional justice mechanisms being designed in the global north and then sort of uh, implemented in or imposed on countries in the global south. So obviously there is an issue there in terms of power and the politics of knowledge production. What it means on the ground is, as uh, to use Rosemary Nagy's terminology, we end up with these one-size-fits-all solutions that are 
imposed on on diverse contexts. So you're having solutions imposed that don't necessarily adequately uh, respond to the need on the ground to the harms that are happening in that particular context. So these critiques are are now recognised, uh, but this sort of um, this imbalance, this particular dynamic, continues. What's become particularly relevant again when Rachel and I are trying to think about environmental harm in particular is um, we drew on the work of uh, Vieja who talks about how when you have this dominance of like Western uh, intellectual traditions and legal traditions that this uh, silences or excludes other ways of knowing. In particular, um, and again as our listeners will will know, um, transitional justice has been critiqued for overlooking Indigenous communities. And when we're excluding the voices of Indigenous communities, this really renders invisible worldviews that might help us think about the environment differently in terms of they might help us envision relationships between humans and nature in a different way in the terms of an interdependent relationship rather than an exploitative one. So as Rachel and I are are unpacking this work further, obviously we don't want to essentialize um, Indigenous communities. Um, it has, though, been argued, for instance, by, by David Goyes and others, that generally uh, traditional indigenous ways of, of knowing and seeing the natural world lead to more protective behaviours than the dominating economic approach that represents the interests of the global north. And I'll, we can add the reference to that piece in the, in the show notes. Um, so by, if we start to really sort of challenge or question the dominance of the global north in transitional justice and engage with other ways of knowing, this might help us to better capture uh, environmental harm and think about how transitional justice might better respond to um, the harms of nature. In terms, again, of, of sort of pushing back against this this uh, neocolonial tendency in transitional justice, a couple of the other aspects that we've thought about are the concept of transitional justice from below, so developed by uh, McAvoy and McGregor. So engaging with the praxis, praxis of grassroots actors, but I think we need to be careful about how how we frame this so it's not just about um sort of extracting from these communities it's really about um uh actively engaging those most impacted by harm in in identifying the problems and responses to them so taking this a step further uh we've also looked at the uh critical environmental justice scholarship drawing on the work of david pello and others to think about how decentering the state might be helpful so transitional justice processes have a tendency to strengthen the state and in so doing, they reinforce existing inequalities and, and patterns of behavior that might be damaging for the environment. So again, we've been thinking about how if we were to decenter the state and provide more space for the communities affected by envi- environmental harm to, to engage um, with, with the harms that they're dealing with themselves, that might again help us to better capture and respond to environmental harm. Of course, within that then, we need to note that um, it's important not to idealize the grassroots or the local either. So, um, for instance, uh, work by Andrea and um, Menzel has talked about how, you know, at the local level, there's power dynamics there too, and you might have elites emerging and hierarchical inequalities within that space. So, yeah, it's we don't want to idealize community-led responses, but we do think that there is scope there in terms of better thinking about the the impacts of environmental harm and how they might be responded to. Okay, so the the final critique that you mention in your in your chapter links the chapter to one of the key uh, topics of the whole edited collection, the one about transformative justice. 
So, uh, Rachel, could you tell us what the critique is here and what the role of, transi of transformative justice uh, uh, plays in the field or in, in this critique? So our final critique looks beyond the failure of transitional justice to recognize environmental harm and instead considers the way that transitions can cause harm themselves. So for this section of the chapter, we were um, inspired by the various folks that have traced the genealogies of transitional justice. And particularly for us, I think Marcus Zanino's genealogy was super helpful because when you understand transitional justice in its historical context, you can see that it's something that came to light or came into dominant practice at the same time as the rise of kind of liberal democracy theories and the decline of left-wing political movements at that time anyway. So obviously, when we're talking about transitional justice, as I said, we're talking about like trials and truth commissions and particular kinds of mechanisms. And although they happen in that context, they're clearly narrower than a broader policy of political or economic reform. But What Marcus Zeno and others have shown is that it can also be understood as supporting particular forms of political and economic uh, reform, and in particular, political and economic liberalization. So it's not Lauren and I's, you know, intention to minimize how liberalism can contribute to democracy or rule of law or anything like that. But we did want to highlight how a focus on, for example, free market economies and macroeconomic growth as the appropriate response to a conflict can further environmental damage. So that's not a particularly novel observation. So green criminologists like Michael Lynch and others who use green criminology and environmental justice, for example, um, have increasingly called out those kinds of interactions and risks and the links between state crime and environmental crime particularly in a weakened state structure. So these links between, you know, essentially neoliberal capitalism and the current climate and biodiversity crises are obviously increasingly undeniable. But at the same time, what we see is transitional justice policies continue to be implemented alongside reforms that are geared towards fostering a grow growing capitalist economy. So we wanted to tease out that This is not a given, it's a, it's a product of a particular way of thinking about the world and that there's implications here not only for the environment but also the sustainability of peace because if you have a transition that's characterized by environmental and social injustice, it's possible that you won't have a very long transition to peace. You know, you're, you're essentially sowing seeds for future conflict in, in the years to come. And so that brings us to the transformative justice literature and as you said, it's, it's one of the key themes in the Edge's collection more broadly, because transitional justice is about transitioning from a period of conflict or, or violence to, you know, um, essentially what was maybe there before, whereas transformative justice argues that you need to go beyond just transitioning um, to consider how you could address like the underlying structural inequalities that maybe caused the violence in the first place. So that resonates in turn with green criminologists like uh, David Pello that Lauren already mentioned, who think about transformative responses to environmental harms. So instead of just um, addressing like individual acts of criminal activity towards the environment, you would think about the political economy in which environmental harm happens. So there's obviously needs for caution in what we're arguing here. Um, and there's a risk of saying 
that transitional justice can do maybe more than it can. So, you know, in the, in the chapter, we acknowledge the arguments of people like um, Porrick McAuliffe and Colleen Murphy, who have flagged, you know, we should be wary of overburdening transitional justice with too many goals, and it, it cannot bring about societal change in and of itself. But what we argue and what we expand on uh, in our subsequent publications, and what we'll probably expand on further, is that transitional justice also occurs at a time of rupture, it occurs at a time of change. And so there are possibilities there when things are in that state of flux. And it's a possibility of reimagining what kind of world or what kind of um, state you might want to live in. So that's where we get to at the end. We try and end on a um, hopeful note that even though transitional justice is only one part of a bigger picture, when we talk about the aftermath of atrocity, there's still possibilities there to further something that's a little bit more uh, environmentally sustainable or environmentally inclusive. So our last question, um, where do you hope to go from here with this area of research? So maybe both of you can answer this question. Sure. So, uh, yeah, in terms of uh, sort of developments, I guess, since we we wrote this chapter, we built on this chapter, Daniela, for a uh, article in the Journal of Genocide Studies and, and Prevention. And um, we are currently working on actually building this work into a monograph, uh, which will be which we will be submitting to Routledge uh, towards the end of, of next year. Um, so it's really a chance to unpack these critiques. Like, I mean, we've the, some of the critiques that, that we've touched on on today are are you know there's a big literature around them, and um, it's an opportunity for us to to get into that more, to really think about what these critiques are, and to think about their implications for environmental harm. And I think as well. Rachel, do you want to say a bit more about, I guess, where, where we hope that work will go in terms of thinking about potential responses? Yeah, so, I mean, in this chapter, as we said, we, we wanted to hone in on green criminology and part of that was making um, quite an unmanageable task a little bit more manageable because there's so many different bodies of scholarship engaging with this particular problem. And it, as I say, said at the start, that grows all the time. It's because we're living in a moment of... Um, unprecedented environmental consciousness so every day it seems like there's a new book that we need to read and you know we haven't read all the books that were originally on our list so that's all very stressful but in our plans I suppose we want to consider the contributions of various other movements and bodies of scholarship that are emerging at this time so you know um, things like the campaign to criminalize ecocide you know ecocide is a crime that can happen in times of conflict or peace but obviously has uh, implications because it's thinking about international criminal responses to environmental harm. So it's interesting for us. Uh, the rights of nature movement. So, you know, as, as you know, uh, Daniela, because we've, we've talked about this and written about this in Colombia, this move to recognize territories as, as victims, territories of indigenous populations as victims is interesting, but also takes place against the backdrop of um, a wider rights of nature campaign that seeks to grant legal rights and in some cases legal personhood to environmental entities. So what does that mean for responses to conflict? Environmental restorative justice movements um, are also super interesting for us because restorative justice is one of the ways that transitional justice mechanisms can be designed. So this book is on um, repairing relationships. What does that mean when you think about, you know, natural entities and other than human victims? And then as Lauren flagged a little bit, there's obviously a, a rich wealth of Indigenous law and governance that is important and interesting for us to engage with. And we have to do that. In a, in a sensitive way as two white ladies. Uh, so we had to take our time with that and um, 
give kudos to where kudos is due to those who have been thinking um, in a much more nuanced way about this type of topic for thousands of years. Uh, so, yeah, I guess it'll be a five-volume book. This will just be what we do for the rest of our lives. But that, that's the rough plan over the next year or so. That's a lot of work. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm pretty sure that your, that your work is going to be an important contribution in the field of uh, environmental harms and transitional justice. Um, there, there is a lot to say uh, on this matter. And, yeah, it's really important, uh, particularly from the global south. Uh, perspectives and yeah, indigenous communities have a lot of um, things to say about this topic. So it's it's important to start also engaging their ideas with the discussions in the global north. So yeah, um, I have read your your chapter and I really enjoy it. So hopefully the listeners um, will also enjoy it as much as I did. So thank you so much for joining us today, and hopefully we'll meet again soon and have you here soon. Thank you. Thank you, Daniela. Thanks so much, Daniela. Thank you for having us. <laughs>